Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latina Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guests today are Professors Miranda Martinez and Pranav Jani. Today, we're talking about the importance of critical race theory and how this analysis informs our work within each of our areas of scholarship. Critical race theory began in legal studies to think about how the law can be just and neutral. This approach allows us to teach, dialogue, and write about how pervasive structural racism affects every area of our lives. What critical race theory allows us to do is push for reparations for the way the BIPOC communities have been subject to oppression under white supremacist practices. In essence, critical race theory is about racial justice. Welcome to this episode. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you, thanks for having us. Can you please briefly introduce yourselves? I'm Miranda Martinez. I'm an associate professor in comparative studies, and I'm currently the director of the Latino Studies program at Ohio State. Hey, I'm Pranav Jani. I am associate professor in English, uh, and I'm program director of Asian American Studies at Ohio State. Great. In the past two years, we have dealt with so much change and racial reckoning in our country and around the world. How do you take time to offer compassion and at the same time work towards justice? Um, yeah, it's a good it's a good question. Um, I think the first thing I think about is compassion for whom you know. Mm -hmm. So I think putting um, black students, um, students of color, indigenous students, um, kind of at the center of that. Because there is a new, there, there's a clash and there's a conflict, but there's also a new awakening mm -hmm. um, and a sense of pride and a sense of we're not going to take it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, maybe things that would have passed by, you know, in the past are, are no longer allowed to simply be said, you know, racist comments and, and uh, microaggressions and all of those things as well. So I think you know, compassion for um, students who are going through that, people who might see me in the classroom and feel, okay, we have some kind of connection. Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely there. But in terms of white students and the majority population, mm -hmm. uh, trying to really, as opposed to kind of a accountability in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the way that might happen in other spaces, in the classroom, this sense that there's a lot to learn There's a lot to think through. You're capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. You've been kept from this kind of knowledge. Um, it will be betterment for our society. It'll be betterment for you. The idea that white supremacists actually give wrong ideas to white people about themselves mm -hmm. <laughs> and about right. the society they're in. And, you know, uh, allies to accomplices kind of thing. And so there's a compassion in that. Mm -hmm. um, there's a challenge in that as well. Um, but um, definitely that's been part of it. Right. Yeah, I agree that the, uh, I think that compassion and justice go very much 
together mm-hmm. and especially for um especially for black students students of color indigenous students mm-hmm. there is a distinct feeling that they're bringing in the classroom um it's a time that is in many ways requires more compassion mm-hmm. from instructors precisely because a lot of the fictions that f- left you know minority students students of color feeling like they could handle it are stripped away mm-hmm. if you dress right the police won't shoot you mm-hmm. if you are polite and accomplished you won't you'll be seen as different and you won't be subject to microaggressions mm-hmm. you know just do better and it'll all go away america is a place of progress and the people who are nasty are a dying breed mm-hmm. and now we've mm-hmm. sort of right. seen this doubling down on all of this ugliness and a sense that it's just sort of writhing from everybody so there's a lot more anger and fear and we haven't really in a lot of spaces we haven't really equipped students they haven't been equipped in their lives with mm-hmm. how to process that anger where to take it and the fear mm-hmm. and and you know just how do you how do you um get them through to an understanding that is not based on the it's going to be okay america always mm-hmm. comes through you know right. um mm-hmm. so that's very much about looking that fear and anger in the face together um and also and 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 also kind of stepping forward in truth um and i think that's also a kind of similar thing with white students who mm-hmm. are often more aware than ever before mm-hmm. you know they hear what their you know family members are saying they're mm-hmm. they they grew up hearing that stuff mm-hmm. and they heard people you know doubling down um I think that, uh, and I think that, you know, there's a, a sense of like, okay, wow, okay, this is a problem. Mm-hmm. And what do I do with that? Um, and some are unfortunately doubling down on the sort of fingers in the ear, la la la, I can't mm-hmm. hear you strategy. Mm-hmm. But, and some are genuinely anguished about what to do next. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I think in, in my experience too, uh, working with uh, white students is, and, and in terms of compassion, I think they're, they, uh, for the most part, uh, want to know how to be an ally, right? Want to want to understand how to best um, support um, the BIPOC community without, um, you know, stealing sort of that uh, that platform, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes, um, I mean, there's been moment, moments where I don't know exactly how to be an ally, so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, modeling or offering ways and we can be and, and that we can be um, allies is one way to be compassionate because uh, we can't just assume that um, you know that they sort of are going about their day that that doesn't affect them because um, like you said, Pranav, um, white supremacist ideas affect us all mm-hmm. not, regardless of our race mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or our privilege yeah i would say two things that really struck me um i think within the last two years i started a classroom so even as things have shifted mm-hmm. right i think i started a class saying how many people went to black lives matter demonstrations in the summer of 2020 right. not it most people did not raise their hands. Mm. So on the one hand in society, we have a greater 
at least surface level acceptance of Black Lives Matter like we didn't see in 2014. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, people are still learning the ABCs of what it means to actually go out, protest, engage, try to shift something. And so I've had to remind myself that even though there's a certain change in the climate, I need to like do some of those basic things um, in a time not too long ago mm-hmm. <laughs> when it wasn't like there were protests all around us, right? right. Um, and that, that some of that work is the same. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I and I do think about those, um, you know, just a few years ago, those bystander um, trainings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, be, uh, became more popular. I don't know when they, you know, when those trainings actually started, but um, they, there seems to be, there seemed to be uh, just a lot of access to those type of trainings. And 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 in reading and and going through some of those trainings, I often thought about how some of us might still feel uncomfortable or unsure on how to handle. Uh, because in some situations we are putting ourselves at risk too, right? Uh, so, mm-hmm. so yeah. So I think mm-hmm. that part of that compassion also um, towards our student is students are is um, equipping them on how to best mm-hmm. handle certain situations or certain communities. All three of us represent a different ethnic group. Um, although Professor Martinez and I are Latinas, I am an immigrant from Mexico. Um, and also a non-native English speaker, and she's Puerto Rican who grew up in New York. Uh, Professor Ajani, your heritage is South Asian. How does the anti-critical race theory rhetoric affect your work or even your personal experience as a part of the BIPOC community? How does that affect your view or your everyday life um, in our campus? Um. I mean, just from a personal level to sort of, I'm not even sure kind of what adhering to the kind of imagined ban would look like. Mm-hmm. From my personal and my intellectual life, it's it's demanding like self-lobotomy, right? <laughs> that I just don't, just don't know what I know or live the life mm. that I right. think or fe- have any feelings about mm. the things that I know or the things that my family or anything have been through. Mm. It's just asking, it's, yeah, it's literally like what they, like what they said a lobotomy, like a traditional lobotomy did apparently was, you know, like sever you so you sort of lived in an eternal now, right? Mm. So you're not supposed to think about your forebears. You're not supposed to think about your history. You're supposed to get up and get your latte and just, you know, bang, bang, go out your day. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a fairly insane requirement. Um, that and even more shocking for kind of living alongside this sort of, uh, uh, you know, accusation that, that people who care about social justice are snowflakes, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. the, how they how that's reconciled, I, I don't even know. Um, it affects my work life. I mean, just, I'm literally in an interdisciplinary department mm-hmm. that focuses on critical theory. Mm-hmm. Boom. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I teach Latino studies where the whole project is turning American history around mm-hmm. to look at how Latinos have been incorporated and that is overwhelmingly 
a history of racism, mm-hmm. labor, exploitation, you know, imprinting brown bodies with expendability um, and and exploitation. Like it's just you, you just can't tell the story any other way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I teach a course on race and public policy. And, uh, you know, the you cannot teach American public policy without teaching about the about the incorporation of of the formerly enslaved into the state and into policy mm-hmm. of um, conquered people, you know, indigenous people and and and, um, you know, Mexican descent people and colonial extras mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, right. Puerto Ricans and Hawaiians. You, you can't you can't do it. Um, so there's it's just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It, it makes kind of just basic thought. Um, almost undoable. Right, especially, I mean, I think a a lot about the BIPOC community and thinking um, of this rhetoric rhetoric that says, don't teach or don't, you know, don't teach this history. (laughs) And it's like, we're, it's our history, right? And and we exist and we're here and we're part of the society. And what you're telling me is to forget like everything that, or minimize my experiences, right? That are very real. And I also think about, about us uh, working at a land grant university, right? right? How do you explain uh, a land grant university without talking about <laughs> displacement of indigenous peoples, yeah. for example? Yeah, no, this discussion is really important because it's actually kind of unique, I'm thinking, because very often we're thinking about the students, right? And the students, and we should, <laughs> yeah. the students who would be kept away from hard history or real history, right, Um, from the truth, right? And we think about the students. We think about the K-12 teachers who would literally be punished. Mm -hmm. um, And if their superintendents, you know, on their HB 327 and and 616, which they're kind of trying to merge. And so, you know, the the superintendents, the school boards who defended teaching real history, Mm -hmm. right, would actually be uh, you know, and, and free thinking, frankly, mm-hmm. right, would be punished with withholding of funds and different kinds of penalties. Um, it's true at the university level as well, but they've changed the policies a little bit. Sometimes they've backed off a little bit. There, there's, but we haven't really. This is the first time mm-hmm. <laughs> after you know lots of engagement with this. Uh, so first time I'm thinking about myself personally. What's the impact mm-hmm. and the way we you both have been talking about it, you know, is illuminating, right? This idea that not just the history that you teach, not just, you know, in my case, the literature that you teach, but you yourself and your community and your ancestors, Mm -hmm. the idea that to talk about that is to live a lie. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a place, the focus is on the U.S., but if we think about empire and colonialism broadly, right, this whole attack on CRT reminds me that Ohio State is the place that in 1931 fired a white sociologist, Herbert Miller, who had the gall to let his students go to Wilberforce University, the HBCU mm-hmm. close to here, um, for dancing and tea with black students. He had the gall to show up when he was in India doing some research. He spoke at 
a rally defending Gandhi's salt march against the British Empire, the word got back to Ohio State and the man got fired. Mm. How dare he speak out against the British Empire? How dare he take Ohio students, right? A northern, quote unquote, university, you know, enlightened university students uh, to an HBCU, right? This is 1930, 1931. Herbert Miller gets fired. And this CRT stuff and the Ohio legislature's backwards position on these questions of real history reminds us how this could be that kind of place, right? Mm -hmm. And so the work we've had to do historically coming out of the movements of the 60s and 70s that Ohio State was part of to establish black studies, to establish women's studies at that time, right? The, the, the 1970 Oval Uprising was part of the same string of uprisings that connect Kent State mm-hmm. to Ohio State where mm-hmm. students were massacred, right? In, in the middle of all that, those were the upheavals that created um, the spaces for this kind of learning and the people like us who could do that work, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the students to come in and they're trying to reverse all of that. That's what the attack is, and that's what we're feeling. So it's the immediate referent, I think, is June 2020 and the new consciousness about race that we were talking about. That's the immediate backlash, right? But it's also a larger historic backlash, like we're seeing with Roe v. Wade and all that. They want to reverse all of those gains that were made, and that's what we're up against. And that has a personal impact as well as a professional impact. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, for us, doing the work that we do, it, it impacts us both personally and, and uh, professionally. Um, you know, in the, in the type of, yeah, I mean, I, how do we teach Latino studies? How do we teach mm-hmm. South Asian studies without having a critical race theory lens to mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it would be um, a disservice to, to our mm-hmm. students and, and, and erasure, erasure of many of our histories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is interesting that is precisely because we have these different backgrounds that we can see, like you mentioned um, just um, briefly, um, a little bit ago, um, um, Pranav, the legacy of colonialism as part of our co- uh, common experiences. So providing a transnational or comparative approach of thinking through these legacies can inform us or can, Im- can inform our work in decolonial pedagogies. What is one way that you're doing this in the classroom? <laughs> I can start. <laughs> sure. um, I think that the... the the very um, uh, the approach that I take in most of my classes is to center Latino stories, right? As, so oral history comes into the classroom, personal story, um, uh, understanding the legacy of our communities and the impact and the contributions of our community um, is one way, right, that I am um, sort of highlighting that this this places spaces spaces and stories are sources of knowledge right that our students when they do this work when they um, for example sometimes um, in one of the assignments that I have is for them to interview a family member and to collect their story is one way that I am 
hopefully signaling to our students that we are learning from each other. Mm -hmm. Our generations, our stories are important to, important to understand uh, where we come from, where we fit into um, you know, the state, the US, the nation, um, and how we have interacted with other groups, right? Uh, we don't always get that um, that understanding in traditional textbooks, right? And and even if if we do, uh, is maybe a small section. So we go deeper, right? And we put that at the center rather than sprinkle it throughout. You know, a course is the center of our unit of our you know it becomes the textbook our stories become the textbook to where we navigate and understand history and, and Im immigration immigration policies and so that is the center that's one of the ways that I that I do it um, and that I really see even if I have students that are you know I, I often have um, a mix of students so even when I am working with uh, non-latinx students they're they're engaging and participating in this decolonial work right by centering the stories or understanding um you know first person narratives from latinx communities i think for me i often think it in a lot of my courses what comes up is is um you know david graber in his book debt the first five thousand years he talked about how sort of neoliberal capitalism the you know the this this society that we live in devotes a lot of energy or kind of you know will to to getting people to believe that there are no other options mm. and that takes a lot of energy and concentration you know it's in the media that if you imagine or think anything else you know, you're a snowflake, you're a dope, you're a slacker, you're, you know, whatever. Um, and so I think what I like to pose, I like to use history to show that in the not very distant past, mm -hmm. um, people were imagining things radically different. Um, even in places or times that people think of are like, you know, old timey, you know, like the, talking about like the 1920s, right? <laughs> or the 1930s where, you know, everyone just wore, you know, bowler hats or whatever <laughs> from their point of view. Like these people were like way ahead of anything mm. you can imagine, you know, in terms of the movements that were there and and what what they thought possible. Uh, and I do that in, in, you know, almost any class that I have, like I really like to leverage history to show also you know people both how society had wider generally but in our communities that the people in those movements imagined these incredibly brave beautiful experiments and they often you know pulled them mm. pulled them off really beautifully and very often the things that we have in our life today are because they did that right mm -hmm. so that um i think for me sort of using sort of um history especially uh and but even if you look around you know today you know there's a lot there's a there's a lot more happening than often people are aware of mm -hmm. but really just expanding kind of making people know that the boundedness of how we live today is not necessary or or 
or inevitable mm-hmm. um, and that you know other things are possible yeah that definitely history so for me in a you know in an English department right both in terms of where my classes are and the students that come to the class and the skills that they bring you know about reading literature and literary texts and all that the challenge always you know I tell them you know some Early on, I used to get in my evaluations, oh, this is not a history class. It's not a politics class. It's a literature class, <laughs> you know, because I didn't get that balance right. Um, for me now, um, I think, you know, after all these years, um, it's a bit easier. But but bringing history in a way that's organic to the literature, right, that you can't actually understand. Suppose I'm teaching post-colonial literature. Mm-hmm. You can't understand. You can't understand why these people in South Asia, in Africa, in the Caribbean, etc., are writing in English unless you understand colonialism, mm-hmm. unless you understand a little bit about colonialism and its impact on culture mm-hmm. and its impact on education and things like that. So that's one thing is that it's organically part of and convincing them that they need to know this to understand these texts. Secondly, picking texts that are really likable on the aesthetic level and mm-hmm. on the character level. Like, if, they're, if it's just teaching them dry history, they're like, it's not a novel, it's not fun. But if they can get into a character and all, it's literature at its best. Like, letting people stand in someone else's shoes mm-hmm. <laughs> and see things through someone else's eyes and all of a sudden... You have the person who came in and it's all like, I'm from a military family and you're talking about colonialism, this and that. All of a sudden they're like, oh, you know, the refugees by Viet Nguyen actually cares about what soldiers goes through, mm-hmm. go through. And it's still anti-imperialist, mm-hmm. you know, and they have to wrestle with, you know, this idea that soldiers are actually working class people that mm-hmm. governments take up and use and abuse for their own wars and things like that. And all of a sudden you get people from military families going like, yeah, I could relate to that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so, so there's, and and this has had had to happen over time, you know, to learn how to make that work. Where it's like it's a it's an open agenda. Like this is why I'm teaching you this stuff, but you think for yourself because it's a complicated thing, as the novels will show you. Um, so that's been something, and I think another big thing for me in my own research has been how can we connect the histories of colonialism and settler colonialism and slavery together Mm -hmm. so that when we talk about links between, when we say words like people of color or BIPOC, like there's something actually real connecting them together. Mm -hmm. It's not just I want to connect with people, (laughs) which I do, but there's something historical connecting these systems together, right? Mm -hmm. The same people who were enslaving were also colonizing and these two were, you know, linked together. So, so that that's something I've been working on my own, and I try to bring that in the classroom as well. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, one of the novels that I that I've taught before is "The Things They Carried" by Tim O'Brien, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it has this very strong, like um, you know, focus on the soldiers and sort of what they what they went through. And um, to me, and, and their interactions, right? Um, it said in the uh, during the Vietnam War, the humanity that that um that you can see through the eyes of soldiers but also the people that that, that they interact with right mm-hmm. the civilians that they interact mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. um and that um that certainly helps the student connect what what mm-hmm. was going on there and then what was going on 
in the U.S., right, mm -hmm. during that mm -hmm. same time? And what are the views and what were people saying that this novel or this, you know, this uh, um, fiction, fiction work, piece mm -hmm. of fiction, um, help you understand or give you a more complete Right uh, view, um, and I, yeah, I love having those moments with students that, you know, I, I think the word um, um, decolonial um, mm. pedagogies or mm. uh, decolonized, you know, curriculums or um, is becoming very popular, but it's something that we have been doing for a long time, <laughs> right? right? So right. for us, it's not new. Uh, even the question, I think, sometimes is puzzling. I'm like, well, I think I always have been doing this, right? right? Because right, right. I offer different perspectives. I don't um, allow, you know, the the canon to dictate the way that we that I'm going to teach the class or um, how my, what my students think. And because my one of my uh, goals is to challenge the students to think or to be able to understand different perspectives, right? Um, to, for myself, sometimes um, I I used to do this. I haven't done it in a while, but I used to do that. I used to do, um, uh, pick a, a new book, a new novel when I mm -hmm. taught literature that I would uh, read along with my students intentionally because I wanted to have that experience with them, that first time reading mm -hmm. the novel together. And what I discovered through that process that that helped me understand, you know, a, a specific topic point of view a little better, um, and then and then discovering those things with my students. So go and, and I would, you know, I would tell them, hey, I'm reading this with you for the first time, so mm -hmm. we're reading this together. And so rather than me having all the answers, right, or like uh, maybe guiding the conversation a little a little bit more closely, it was. Um, like we're here, we're mm -hmm. doing this, we're discovering this together and being challenged in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I often use that space to invite the students to to be uncomfortable, but feeling comfortable in that, you know, in that space, even if you didn't know, even if you didn't have all the answers, or even if I didn't have all the answers for them, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I yeah. So those I I think about how um, even critical race theory or you know um, the the word decolonial has been so mm -hmm. popular in the past few years. But that's that's our work. That's what we do. That's what we have been doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to ask each of you a question. One of the frustrating things about the sort of anti CRT moment and I. I, I want to put all that in quotes because obviously they don't know what CRT is. They just want to attack, you know, <laughs> critiques right. of white supremacy, you know, <laughs> and they want to stamp it out of the classroom and right. all. But, um, but one of the frustrations I have with that moment is that we have to do basic defenses of things like multicultural education and DEI and stuff like that when we ourselves are often frustrated by <laughs> those or, or even like decolonial when it becomes like a branding mm -hmm. you know what i mean like mm -hmm. academics are you know are always putting out like there's a term flavor of the year kind mm -hmm. of thing right mm -hmm. um and there's a branding of it which then with dei becomes institutionalized mm -hmm. you know and then kind of comes from the top down 
and becomes sort of divorced from things like racial justice and mm-hmm. gender justice and right. things like that at times, right? And so one of the frustrations has been like, you need to do that basic defense mm-hmm. <laughs> of multiculturalism and DEI and things like that. But yeah, my frustration's always been that the classrooms don't do enough of it or that the university doesn't actually take it seriously, right? So I was just wondering if you, if you had the same kind of feelings or how to, what are some strategies to deal with that, that sort of dissonant, cognitive dissonance, you know, between defending things that uh, we might also have certain critiques of? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, we're in the position of, of you know, fighting for policies that are often like a real headache for us to enact yeah. or actually really miss the mark in, in, in giving us what we need as black or brown or indigenous faculty. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still remember with a little bit of uh, horror my, my sort of earliest uh, faculty experience at a at a my first job out of graduate school at a liberal white liberal <laughs> a white liberal arts college <laughs> a liberal white college um, where you know it it was really to to sort of come out and having come from New York you know mm-hmm. sort of a majority minority city and then mm-hmm. be there literally to provide color mm. to affluent white students mm-hmm. and just and just not even being like you know and just feeling like completely um overwhelmed by how little agency that gave me in terms of figuring out who I was going to be mm-hmm. as a as a as a as an academic um and uh you know I think that um the answer kind of lies in to some degree sort of labor advocacy right to you know Mm. being um you know protesting when we are treated disposably Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um Mm -hmm. and uh and when our discipline is treated as a fun Mm add-on rather than sort of intellectually central right um i think uh you know, Ohio State has a has some ways to go there, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so um, you know, and and I think um, being in community with each other, mm-hmm. um, you know, really, you know, these things, these these initiatives also have to kind of work for us, you mm-hmm. know, like as you know, we're in a we're in a we're in a condition right now of of sort of having to build back our Latino studies mm-hmm. program mm-hmm. Um, and um, I'm optimistic about that but I recently had a thought when we were thinking about sort of hires and how to communicate like mm-hmm. a lot of what it needs to do is just make a lot of what sort of new hiring and program building should do is kind of make life better for the people who've sustained the program and have kind of stuck with it, right? Like those people who are kind of exhausted, like, right. you know, the, the so like treating it like a community that mm-hmm. matters, that has mm-hmm. an agenda and a, and, a, and a program that makes the university better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if this answers your quest- your question, but I often think about the contradictions that we that we encounter mm-hmm. in institutions of higher ed, right? Because um, we talk about, you know, uh, gender equity and, um, you know, how to, uh, you know, get rid of sexism and, uh, in our classes. Mm-hmm. And, and then you see some of those same faculty being sexist and racist outside of the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we experience that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or our students even being critical, right? So mm-hmm. I remember a couple years ago, one of my students, she was a black student, and she had been, you know, through our program, and and she's like, you know, all the all the classes talk about, you know, sort of um, this different histories and legacies mm-hmm. and like the black communities, and she's like, but I've never had a professor in this department that is either indigenous mm-hmm. or black, mm-hmm. and that was. Very true, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so, how do we reconcile that, or how do we reconcile talking about um, racial justice and equity uh, when you know women at a, uh, in higher ed? Um, Ohio State is one example, but um, are um, still expected to do more service. There's still uh, pay inequities um, in 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 higher ed and women have to fight, you know, have to bring that up uh, and fight for um, pay equity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know of a couple cases, uh, one was successful, one she's still fighting for that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that sometimes is, sometimes is very frustrated that the institution that sort of wants to uh, equip and train our students to, you know, uh, uh, leave the institution and make the world a better place right. is not really taking care of the BIPOC community, women, mm-hmm. um, in the same way that we're preaching to our students mm-hmm. that they should, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I often think about that. And I, and I, so I'm critical, but I'm also pushing to make things better, right? right for my right. department, for my community, for right. my students, uh, because that's a reflection, like what we are doing in the classroom, s- students shouldn't see a disparity, right? In right. that, right. so yeah, right. I often think about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. in our own behavior and also at the institutional level. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so it becomes this kind of like, like, I'm glad Ohio State's taking a stand against the uh, anti-CRT bills and mm-hmm. things like that. Like, mm-hmm. think, of, think of what would happen to all the efforts we're making right. if those things passed. Like, there's a lot of money <laughs> at this point invested in, you know, something different. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's like we want to defend these things because we actually want a lot more, mm-hmm. you know, out of the institution. And, uh, and yeah, yeah we, we need to, these contradictions you know, can exist. Right. So I guess I guess we defend and talk about it at the same time. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Edward Said, uh, no solidarity without criticism. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. What do you feel are conversations that we must be having in the classroom or in the community or even by bringing the community into the classroom mm. to move towards equity and social justice, especially as we think of our work in ethnic studies? Again, like we were talking about with the contradictions and, mm-hmm. and possibilities, right? Um, mm-hmm. Both. the There's a new emphasis on community engagement. Mm-hmm. 
right? There's a new emphasis on um, racial and social justice as things that, you know, kind of officially, institutionally, mm -hmm. right? Things we should be about. Mm -hmm. And those are all welcome. Um, at the same time, what do we mean by community engagement? Which communities matter? Which kinds of movements matter, right? So when 20,000 students sign a letter saying they want OSU to cut ties with Columbus police mm -hmm. because of the killings of black people in our own streets in this city, mm -hmm. is doing work there <laughs> in that direction, community engagement? Mm -hmm. or you know, And does it get valued as community engagement? Or is it other kinds of work that are seen as legitimate, safe, real ways to make change, quote unquote, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? I think there's... I think we see the discrepancies all the time. And so these kinds of debates need to be rigorous. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to bring them into the classroom and allow students to shape them. You know, they may debate with our own ideas. Mm -hmm. That's that's fine. We need to right. get them thinking, right? Bringing people into the classroom, doing projects where they connect what they learn in theory or mm -hmm. in a novel or something like that you know, with real people, whether that's their project or it's just kind of a mini assignment. This is something I've struggled mm -hmm. with. Like you can't make it mandatory either because sometimes people don't know how to do that kind of work mm -hmm. and need to, they need something that's not uh, as big a part of their grade, <laughs> you know, um, if it's experimental kind mm -hmm. of things. But mm -hmm. but we need to bring bring that front and center. So I always say like, you could get an A in here and learn all the theories and concepts and go on with your diploma and this mm -hmm. and that. But if you truly learn something, right, then it's going to be like connecting beyond the walls of this classroom. And that's right. what I'm trying to project. That's what your books are trying to project. Mm -hmm. And you have to hold yourself up to that. So I'm trying to bring that into the, into the curriculum a bit more, whether okay. it's guests or their projects that take them outside the classroom and, you know, making some of those links. Right. One of the most... Uh, um, impactful, I guess, um, times in my classes is when we invite uh, organizations or mm -hmm. community members to mm -hmm. come talk. You know, we're talking, we were talking about um, workers' rights mm -hmm. in one of, and it was a, it was a fictional, you know, novel and, and it's, and it's, talking about immigrants and labor work and, mm -hmm. um, you know, farmers. And then, um, in that unit, we were, you know, went on to discuss, you know, um, labor rights and worker rights. And, and so we had uh, members of the Immokalee yeah. um, Coalition of mm -hmm. Immokalee Workers uh, come and talk about the work that they do and how that it continues to be a struggle, mm -hmm. you know. And so it's not something, it's not fiction. It's not something that happened, you know, during Cesar Chavez time. It's happening right now. Um, and and so the students are able to connect. Like this is this that we're studying and that we're reading, it's is happening here. It's happening in my own community, perhaps, right? And, and, and so Florida is not the only place where mm -hmm. this is happening. It's happening here. Mm -hmm. And why do they come here every? You know, the the uh, coalition comes here every year, every spring, to protest. Um, uh, the, uh, Wendy's, right? Yeah. And how is that connected to our um, city, right? Um, so to me, um, those are also um, key conversations that we 
can have with our students. And then and then I sort of step back and let them ask the questions and be, you know, um, the the resource for the students. And, and that conversation turns out really uh, productive, very beautiful exchange of like um, ideas and 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 I feel in in some cases it ignites our students' um, interest in mm-hmm. m- maybe more like social justice or activism. Mm-hmm. I uh, th- that question makes me think about like my race and public policy class, and um, when we talk about like. Uh, a lot of my class we spend talking about the racial wealth gap mm-hmm. and which is a kind of interesting thing where it's where history and and sort of state policy also collides with people's current live conditions you know if you were a white family who was able to get whose grandparents or great-grandparents got a house through the GI Bill Mm -hmm. in the 1940s, you live in in an affluent suburb now because of how your family used that wealth to trade up, right? Mm -hmm. And if you were, if you're descended from a black family that couldn't buy a house in that time, Mm -hmm. you probably live in a much smaller house, right? So, um. And it's a kind of dollars and cents thing. And, you know, people kind of, and but people think of, often think of like their family circumstances, the house they live in, the community they live in, mm-hmm. as just kind of reflecting who they are, them. And it's mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, so, and, and when you kind of unfold that, the sort of historical circumstances of what, of how much policy was stacked to build white wealth, you know, by, by stripping indigenous um, land, mm-hmm. you know, black labor, Latino labor, you know, and and sort of transfer it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that the the state kind of facilitated concentration of wealth for the people that it deemed worthy. Uh, and then you see, and the, but then you keep going, and you talk about okay, let's talk about the tax code today. You know, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the deductions for for um, homeowners. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and you you kind of keep going, and and at a certain you know, and then and then it starts to collide. You sort of see history repeating itself. Like I, the last time I taught that course, you know. Uh, it was the infrastructure bill, you know, and how the most yeah. progressive part yeah. of the infrastructure bill that was supposed to actually make up for the things that had been done to like the Social Security Act and those things got stripped out. And, and you know, we were, we were reading about that and my students were like, oh man, you know, <laughs> right. and, and, and uh, you know, and, and, you know, Tucker Carlson was roasting Peter, um, Pete Buttigieg for mm-hmm. ha- saying that roads are racist. Mm-hmm. And we're like, yeah, but roads are racist, though, <laughs> you know, and sort of seeing the kind of, you know, the same dynamics reemerge, how anything, anything that goes to sort of white to build white wealth is good policy. Mm. And anything that goes to build black or brown wealth is is welfare. Mm-hmm. And as a giveaway, and it's not sound. Mm. And just seeing that kind of repeat itself, um, that, you know, that's, but then also moving, you know, sort of for me in that class, it's, you know, people, you don't, you don't, it, the purpose of that is not to make 
white students feel terrible Mm -hmm. about what they have, but maybe to think of it as less naturalistic, as just sort of, you know, yay for us, (laughs) you know? and, and and sort of seeing the wheels that turn to make it happen and mm-hmm. facilitate it. Um, but also to then to sort of think about like, okay, so what does it look like to really proactively redress this instead of mm. feeling bad about it? Right. Um, yeah, so that's, that is, you know, that's kind of. Right, I was thinking about, you know, understanding that, um, that history too um, can, give us the tools or students um, the tools to fight back when they hear, um, you know, we built this because we're hard work, because we, mm-hmm. we did it on, you know, because it was hard work and um, and the people, you know, the communities, primarily BIPOC communities that are in poverty is because they don't, they just don't apply themselves mm-hmm. or they just, you know. And, um, and I, you know, and we sometimes have those conversations. Yeah. I'm like, no, that's it. we. You are um, enjoying, you know, privilege because of, you know, policies that policies that happened decades ago, and 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 they continue to happen. Yeah, and yeah. continue to happen. Yes. Well, well, one of the things in HB three twenty seven when they define what are divisive concepts, they make a list. It's I mean, it would be hilarious if it weren't you know, so, so awful. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's listed as a divisive concept is any teaching that tells students that the United States is not a meritocracy and that uh, devalues the meaning of hard work, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And it's all, right, it's, it's diametrically opposed to the idea of structural racism Mm -hmm. and challenging, you know, and learning about these histories that have created the world we have today instead, right? It's, I, I'm putting that out there because it's like they know exactly what they're fighting. Right. They're putting forward meritocracy. <laughs> you know, we, we value hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, people mm-hmm. who work two or three jobs value hard work. <laughs> exactly. It's that, yeah. it's exactly. that that's not enough to make it in this society. And right. to ask the question why should mm-hmm. not be a uh, a, a divisive concept, but mm-hmm. learning the truth, right? And this is where I think our community is so important, or the work, how we involved our students in the community is is so important, right? So uh, um, in the service class, uh, service learning class that I teach, um, one year, our, our student, one of our students worked at a free clinic here. And, you know, they have to write sort of reflections about their work in the community. And I really feel honored to read some of the raw (laughs) experiences Mm. that they've had Mm. and also like how they express um, how wrong they were about certain or like Mm. how misguided they they were about certain, you know, issues. And, And I remember a lot this student, she was a white student that I assume um, came from a affluent, you know, um, uh, family. And um, she said that when she started working at this um, clinic, she assumed that everyone that visited those clinics were homeless. Mm. And what she realized Mm. is that there were people that were, um, you know, underemployed, so they didn't qualify for insurance, mm-hmm. um, or they, you know, they were, they had two or three jobs, so they were working more than full time, but none of the jobs offered insurance, 
or they were in between jobs, you know, like, so there were different reasons why they did not have access to health care. And mm-hmm. that's why they visited, you know, this clinics. And she met people that, you know, like I said, worked two or three jobs. She were um, met people that were, um, you know, highly educated, but were in a situation where they just mm-hmm. couldn't have, they didn't have access, you know, sometimes there was immigration issues that uh, prevented them from having access to healthcare. And so that opened her eyes, you know, just to that, um, that assumption that she had about who visited those places, right. Um, and, and so I, you know, nothing, I could have said that in the classroom, I could I could say, mm-hmm. oh, by the way, people, right. you know, and they could listen to that and like put it. But that experience will mm-hmm. always be there for her. Like she will always remember that the people that she worked with, you know, that she served during that time were diverse in, right. in, in everything in every possible way that she could think of. Um, and that is something nobody could deny. Right. She mm-hmm. li- she was there. Right. She saw it. So. so just one thing I wanted to throw in mm-hmm. was that um, it, with Asian American studies and, and all, we also have to take up the specific history of Asians and how they're racialized mm-hmm. because there's a whole narrative right now. You'll often see stats that are like whites and Asians when they're talking about test scores, when they're talking about wealth, mm-hmm. when they're talking about things mm-hmm. like that. And I'll just say very quickly, the need to both talk about those statistics and what does it mean? And why are there so many affluent Asians, right? Um, to talk about the politics of trying to pit, you know, the, the model minority myth mm-hmm. and pitting Asians against black and Latinos and, and that actually as being the purpose of it, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then also to talk about the whole um, presence of working class Asians and how different Asians from different populations, right, have different histories of coming right. to this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the long history of it. Um, and before 1965, you have many more working class Asians. And and then they're pretty much obliterated <laughs> in terms of citizenship and kept out. Mm-hmm. And then in 65, they're brought back in, but with a very it's kind of social engineering. Mm-hmm. We just want the professionals and mm-hmm. STEM and all that. And then and so just wanted to throw that in there that there's a lot of complexities to this that we have to bring in. Like mm-hmm. even when we say people of color, you know, that history really leads us to more complexity mm-hmm. yeah. and more mm-hmm. thought rather than simplicity and that oh, kind of absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I, um, I talk about that in my classes. I'm like, I'm Latina. I'm an immigrant, but I have privilege because I'm a U.S. citizen now. I speak, I'm bilingual. I speak English. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, higher ed, higher ed education. Those are all the things that, that um, I hold, you know, that even though within and maybe under, you know, oppressed community, I have privilege, right? And what do I do with that? So that's, so that is just to say that my experience is very different than mm-hmm. other, other people's within my, mm-hmm. my um, group. Mm-hmm. 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 Great. Um, is there anything else you want to add to this conversation? No, I I think it's been a been a great discussion. Thank you. Good. Yeah, same. It's just been good to talk like this, and, and it just reminds me of how 
We should keep doing it. Absolutely. <laughs> doing it. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for, for uh, engaging in this discussion with me. Thanks so much. Thank you. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Thank <laughs> you.